Good morning. I am your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the February 6th, 2018 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, my first guest is Megan Herbert, illustrator and TV writer. She'll talk about her collaboration with climate scientist Michael Mann on a book explaining climate change to young earthlings. It's entitled, The Tantrum That Saved the World. In the second segment, UCI history professor Jeffrey Wasserstrom returns to the show to post what we can look forward to at the fourth annual forum for the academy and the public presented by the UCI Humanities and Law Schools and the Los Angeles Review of Books. The forum theme this year is Who Do We Think We Are? American Identity and the Ideal of Democracy in the 21st Century. It'll be at the Crystal Cove Auditorium. That's, if you're listening live, it's this Friday afternoon and Saturday. It's free and open to the public. And I'm going to give you information later about how you secure your spot at the forum. We'll be right back after station break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is writer-illustrator Megan Herbert, here to talk about her special collaboration with Michael Mann, Climbsci Guy, who graced this radio waves a little over a year ago. Their book is entitled, The Tantrum That Saved the World. A little bit about Megan. She was raised and educated in Melbourne, Australia. After trying her hand at a law degree at Melbourne University, she sorted out that writing and drawing were more her calling. Her experience includes a junior role in the magazine industry, a freelance illustrator. She then enrolled at RMIT, where she studied journalism. Shortly after graduating, she found work as a television writer, an exotic choice for someone who rarely consumed that medium. She quickly realized she was home, falling hard for the medium of fictional storytelling as a way to reach people and make a difference in the world. And she's going to show that in spades here shortly. She's worked mainly for soap operas in her TV career and then graduated, she calls it, to dramas and film writing and development later on. She's continued to work as an illustrator with the aim to move across to children's writing and illustration, bringing all her skills together. She's lived in Toronto, London, Reykjavik, and now in Amsterdam, where she's been for the last two years. Her passionate interest in the environmental movement, and she thinks it's a responsibility as a human being to use her communication skills, that is visual and narrative, to communicate the current problems the world's facing and to Let's just face it, Call, give us the call to action. She comes to us today from Amsterdam. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Megan Herbert. Thank you, Claudia. Well, congratulations with this collaboration of yours with Michael Mann. I just want to know how on earth, on this little hot little planet, did you two find each other? We met in Reykjavik in 2013. Mike had come over to Reykjavik panel called Earth 101, uh, which was aiming to bring together storytellers and filmmakers, of which I was one, 
and climate scientists with the aim to try and communicate about the problem of climate science or climate change uh, in a more engaging way. So it put us all together in a room and we all uh, sort of exchanged ideas and the book was born from that meeting. Um, I suggested it to Mike in one of the breaks that it would be a great idea to try and reach children as a way to reach parents and communities as well. And his eyes lit up and it, it really just grew from there. Well, we know the reason he was on my show in December 2016 was to talk about his book that was dealing with reaching a very mainstream audience. It was not a technical book, and it's the same kind of urgency that your book is striking. So I I can see the overlap. I can just see his panel lighting up from here. I haven't met him in person yet, but I follow that man. And so you're collective urgency, uh, this is where that dance began. That's fascinating. So there's the adage about 85% of life is showing up. I think it's just moved up to 92% with that opportunity that was hatched at at Reykjavik. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) So your your desire to give your son Maxim, I guess we can just just name his name once. We're not going to be... Yeah, that's okay. (laughs) It's suitable yet intentional material broken down in three sections. Uh, This is where we can see your collaboration in full flower. And so what I like among many features is you take the three R's to six of them. It's not just the, the usual what was it? Recycle, reuse, and blah, blah, blah. Refuse. Yeah. <laughs> refuse, recycle, repair, rot, reduce, reuse. So now where where did those six come from? I'm not sure I've been seeing those in circulation so broadly. Yeah, okay. Well, I think they, they've ex- extended to the six R's thanks to the zero waste movement, which I'm following closely right. and doing my very best to, to adhere to Absolutely. Um, and move towards. Um, so, of course, the, I think the most important of those R's is refuse, because I think we've all got to learn to, to consume a lot less. Um, and really, it was only two generations ago that we were. Um, when I was growing up in suburban Australia in the 1970s, my mum made everything. We grew our own vegetables. We composted. We were moderate consumers. And we weren't hippies. It was just common sense living. And this hyper-consumerism that we live in today is really a, quite a new concept. And I think we've got to pair things back. And that's one step that all families can do right now um, in a very easy way, consume less. So this is one of the six R's. And we've tried, I've tried to give really clear examples for each of those R's, very basic things that people can do in their homes right now. There's no preparation needed. There's nothing to buy. It's all about simplification well we had a guest on i think it was about two two weeks ago and she's making her local enterprise about repairing down the way she's having she goes to pop-ups she goes to farmers markets i think she was uh, at a long beach one last week that's that's not far from where the station is not totally far and the idea is that she dispenses from bulk into everybody's own container. So she's so we're we're trying to get onto that zero waste movement train here with uh, with refusal for that. And I I don't know, how, I mean, what's it look like in Amsterdam? Is everybody running around with a plastic cup and the lid and the straw like I keep <laughs> seeing around campus? It's like it's a fashion still. 
Well, some it's interesting. Uh, some yes. things Amsterdam is very ahead on. For example, uh, we don't own a car here. We quite happily get around uh, using our bikes everywhere. And they've, they've constructed the city in such a way that that is very easy and safe for people to do. But in other areas, Amsterdamers seem to be still quite mad for packaging in supermarkets. Really? And ah. I'm, I'm really having to hunt down places that sell in bulk or uh, without containers. But in a way, my son and I are going on this little journey together where we're hunting down these things. And each time we discover a new store or a new way to cut out some more packaging in our lives, it's like a little game and we, we get very excited about it. So it's not something you can do overnight. And I think people are really tough on themselves about this. They decide to go zero waste. They discover it's not as easy as they thought and then they, they give the whole thing up. But what I'm really hoping with, with the, the action plan in the book is that we're encouraging people to do something rather than nothing. It's not about uh, attaining perfection overnight. It's about doing the little things that, that are achievable for you in your daily routine. So back to your book as a part of conveying that message. Tell us about your target age, because I, I don't think there's any book quite like yours. Not that I mean, I'm not reading as many picture books as I was maybe 20 years ago. But what's the target age and the range of your audience? Yes, I agree. Our book is a little different to, to many children's books out there in that we're, in a sense, aiming it at the entire cross-section of the family. Um, children as young as three or four can enjoy the, the picture book part, which is the first section of the book. Slightly older readers, say seven and up, will get a lot out of Michael's science section towards the back. And the action plan is intended for the whole family. So it's really very deliberately designed to target these different age groups in the family because it is about working together at home and in schools and in communities. So, and in terms of, um, my son is five, and so he is in the, in the younger age range of that. And I'm using it as a, as a tool now to start the conversation with him in ways that he can understand. And it's up to parents to use the book as a tool to then make decisions about how deep they want to go into the topic with their kids when they're ready to hear more or to learn more or when they're showing interest. You know, Megan, I'm going out on a snarky limb here and I have additional audiences and those who are close to where I'm located here in Irvine, California, USA, planet Earth. I think a really good audience would be particularly our city hall of recent, our particular local state legislators and the congresswoman who represents us in the 45th. They all have very quaint ideas about where the right side of history is. So um, the more I read the book, I thought this has got to be the most subversive read. This, that it is so earnest that no intellectually dishonest office holder can, could resist the messages that you're bringing out there. I really hope so. And, and we very, very deliberately designed it so that it wouldn't uh, be attacking, but it would be providing solutions and positive ways forward. So I would hope that anyone, no matter which side of the political divide they're on or what age group they're in, would see that this is a book intended to make the world a better place. No matter what your p politics are, I think we can all agree that to have a healthier, cleaner planet is better for everybody. So um, I would love to see this book being read by people in city halls and, and all the rest of it, and in all walks of life. I think that's absolutely was the intention in writing it. And you know, I can see as a kind of a, 
a, a sort of a civil gesture, um, not disobedient gesture, but a civil sort of part performance art, part advocacy is just to take the book to the comment period where we are dealing with a retro local state level leadership and just open up the book. I mean, if we had we had Senator from Texas, Ted Cruz, reading Green Eggs and Ham for a, <laughs> you know, to uh, hold off on a vote, I can just see, I'd like to open up with that book and read it in our city council meeting for the next I would love to hear that. And if any of your listeners do that, please get in touch and let me know how it goes because I think it's a fabulous idea. Oh, I know you've (laughs) thought about that already. Well, for those, those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Megan Herbert. She's an illustrator and a TV writer who, in collaboration with climate scientist Michael Mann, has a new book explaining climate change to young earthlings, as I like to call it. It's entitled The Tantrum That Saved the World, it's self-published. The ebook is now available for purchase and the books are shipping next month, that's March. So how many languages, Megan, do you envision printing this book? Because I noticed there was a, a Polish tweet about it yesterday. I haven't seen that Polish tweet, but I'm going to look for it. That's very exciting. Um, well, we know that this is not climate change is not an English-speaking issue. Um, it's a global issue. So, absolutely, I'd like to see the book in as many languages as possible. Um, and I have quite happily already received some emails from different people around the world saying, "Oh, I'm I'm in love with your book, and I'm very keen to help you translate it into Dutch or German or whatever." So. Um, yeah, that's been quite encouraging and that will all roll out as quickly as I can make it happen this year because I, I really just want people from all, all parts of the world to be able to read it and to share it with their children. And it seems to me that would be a very straightforward task. You've not been the least bit idiomatic in conveying your message. It's very, very universal. So it, it I think it begs. But, but was that... Was that your original idea is, okay, we'll push it out in English first, but we know it's going to go out in other languages. Did you, did you know that when you and Michael discussed this project? That was always the plan, yes. But okay. interestingly enough, being a rhyming text, it is a quite a specialized branch of translation that we'll oh, need. That so part, I'm hoping oh, yes. if anyone has a, any particular skills in that area, do reach out because it, it is, once you add the element of rhyme, That's it can true. get quite complicated, I've discovered. Well, that yeah. rhyming, that is, it's so powerful. And Megan, I don't know, did you, did you plan on reading us a little excerpt? I'm not wanting to do any spoilers for my listeners that are, when I talk with authors, but I don't know if you already maybe selected something so you get, can convey the vibe that comes from your book. It's just, it's just rapturously riveting. Oh, thank you. It's very kind. Well, I'd, I'd happily read an excerpt if you Would like. Would you? I'm, Would I'm you please? That. We could perhaps begin from the beginning and okay. see, see the problem that lands on Sophia's doorstep. I'll read first, the first few pages for you. Okay, thank you. Bing bong! Sophia was minding her business one day when, quite without warning, a bear came to stay. The ice that he lived on had ceased to exist. He hoped that Sophia would kindly assist. Startled and flustered, Sophia said, No! But the bear came right in. He had nowhere to go. Bing bong! More out-of-towners arrived needing aid, asking if it was all right that they stayed. Somehow the seas have flooded our land. The kids ran right in. They were quite out of hand. Sophia attempted to turn them away. We've got nowhere else, was all they could say. 
Unwelcome arrivals showed up all day long. Bing bong, bing bong, bing bing bong. And so there you see you've got Sophia with an enormous problem landing on her doorstep and she has to try and solve it all by herself. Yes, and it I don't know, you must be somewhat familiar with Dr. Seuss's Theodore, I, I'm trying to think of Theodore's his, his real name, Theodore, it's not yeah. coming, but you know Dr. Seuss, this is like, this has a kind of a Seuss tradition you're carrying. Well, that's very kind of you to say. Of course, he's one of the one of the absolute greats and in regular rotation in our household. And um, we we love. There are some wonderful uh, children's writers who do excellent rhyming texts, such as uh, Julia Donaldson, who wrote all the Gruffalo books. And there's a wonderful Australian writer, Sheena Knowles, who who wrote some fantastic rhyming texts. Look, I'm taught myself how to do this, but. You know, you learn from the best, and that, luckily there are so many wonderful resources for writers out there now, and, and if you are determined to, to learn a craft, you can. So that's been how I've pursued it. Well, I'm, I'm hoping I don't break up here on live radio, but I admit I lose it every time I get to the page where it's, I'm quoting you directly, goodwill costs nothing and does nothing but good. That was pure genius, Megan. Uh, I'm so glad. Yeah, I, I just I hope to to use uh, narrative and emotion to to draw people into this issue because it is a scary issue, and I want people to feel differently about it and feel a sense of hope and positivity. So that was definitely always in my mind um, in the writing. So let's get right to what's the right age. I mean, we we talked a little bit about your target, but d- did you? consult with any professionals? I mean, uh, you, you give acknowledgement to a lovely collaboration of uh, some 18, 20 people at the end of your book, but was there some kind of a developmental, literary, pedagogical kind of uh, resource that you went to so you knew, Michael, and you knew the sweet spots that you want in, in a broad way, the sweet spots to, to reach out and appeal to your readers? Absolutely. Um, I read and researched the topic really widely, uh, not just the broader topic of climate change, but also the narrower field of uh, communication to children in particular. And I looked at articles and studies from Yale and um, the Journal of Environmental Psychology, American Psychological Association, many others like that, and also articles by publishers who have already tackled the topic. And The main message from all the research I did boiled down to a few key points, which I always stuck to. Okay, those are good Um, for us, for what we do from here on. Yeah, yeah. So basically for the younger readers, the idea is to not overwhelm them with the big picture or or terrifying news because they just don't have the bandwidth to process it. So that for them, I focus on Sophia's story in her learning to feel empathy for her new friends and to help them. That's, that's what the little kids are focusing on. Then the older readers who are more able to process the more complex ideas um, can turn to the science section at the back and uh, that they can get a, a fuller picture of what's going on. I'm sorry, they're I'm, ready to process those ideas. Megan, it and, sounds. It's. I just want to make sure. Yes. It's science section. In case somebody heard science fiction. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> science so, section. Right. That's just right. making sure. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Definitely science section that that Mike has uh, has has written. Um, and then the third element is 
if you give kids information about uh, basically a frightening topic or an overwhelming topic, you have to break it down in such a way that makes them feel empowered that they can do something about it. You can't just give a child a problem and say, oh, well, there's nothing you can do. That would just devastate them and, and they'd shut down. So that's where the action plan comes in. And it means that they can understand something's going on, they can learn about it if they would like to read more, uh, and then they can do something. So that's, I've, I've, yeah, that's what all the research led me towards. And that, did, you, did it also lead you to the rhyming technique? That there would be traction, there would be a rhythm and a flow and an adoption of a sort of life choices? Well, we all know it's. I, I don't know if you have an opportunity to read read with children at all, but it is so much more fun when you're, when you're reading a rhyming text. And the text did actually start out as a, a non-rhyming text, but I worked on it for a long time, and I st- I started to notice that a few rhyming couplets were popping in, and I thought, you know what, this has to be in rhyme. So I went back to the drawing board, and and it instantly became more engaging for the people I was showing it to. So, yeah, I thought it was the, the best way to draw people in. Well, it does. It's kind of embeds a kind of callback response. I know in in WASP culture, we're not inclined necessarily, but in African-American sort of theological settings that it happens. And so the, with once the, the rhythms assumed by the, the listening audience, the, the children, then there that sort of gives a pattern response. So it's sort of like really, I don't want to say drilling because that's not that's not what you're doing, but it's inculcating and leading to practice what this paring down of waste means in their lifestyle. Absolutely. And I am a huge believer in uh, showering uh, broad vocabulary over children as young as one or, you know, I was reading complicated texts to my son when he was very little. And when they're looking at pictures as well and they're hearing it in rhyme, they understand the meaning of words in the context of the book. And that all of that washes over them and goes in their brain and expands their vocabulary like nothing else. So I very deliberately didn't dumb down the language either. The concepts are simplified so they can absorb them, but the language, I wanted it to be rich and challenging so that they're, they're getting a lot more out of each read and, and learning new words. I think that's part of it too. I saw that that approach and lauded you for that. Well, the obvious question, Megan, is when might you be on a book tour in the U.S., especially, I'm thinking of Southern California. When are we going to meet you? See this book stacked up. I'd so love to do that. Um, And as soon as I'm able, but um, currently running this is basically a solo operation. I have to focus on some of the distribution and all those things in the immediate present. But um, I'm hoping as well that Mike will be able to do some of that, uh, take that, some of that load in the US, and I'll be doing some of it here in Europe where it's, it's uh, closer for me, closer to home base. Um, but yes, of course, we'd be really keen to, to, to get out and share it with everybody as soon as we can. So we will be doing that, and we'll, we'll keep everyone up to date on social media and, and on the website, of course if any dates come up. Okay, well, uh, you know how to reach us, and we'll be sure to make it very clear that you're you're coming <laughs> to town. Well, so while you're talking about distribution, and I'm thinking production to push out in addition, you know, this just, and we in preparation for this interview, you mentioned your own appreciation, our mutual appreciation for Jim Henson's productions. I can just see those Muppets setting up this whole musical of, of your book. Well, I, I definitely used my storytelling uh, knowledge and my my knowledge of story structure in, in making the book. And 
um, certainly it's all set up for those sorts of things. So in any way that the, the book can be expanded to, to reach a wider audience, I'd be very open to it because I think the, the engaging story is in there and it's about getting that message out to as many people as possible in a way that they enjoy so that they can engage. Right. Yeah. And so certainly, well, Megan, what's the best way for folks to get their hands on this book? They can go straight to the website, which is worldsavingbooks.com. And the ebook is available for purchase immediately. And we're taking pre-orders now for the hardcover book, which will be shipping in March, as you said. So, um, yes, all printing and distribution is coming from the UK. And that all works back into our efforts to make this book carbon neutral. So we're, we're making the, the shipping process um, as simplified as possible rather than shipping it here, there and everywhere or double shipping it to, to retailers. Um, so that's, that's why we're doing a direct-to-consumer model for now. So um, hopefully, yes, people can hop online and, and put a pre-order and now they should have a book in their hands in a, in a few weeks. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I have so many intended recipients for this book, and I'm not kidding. There are so many office holders in our immediate area <laughs> that I, I find it sort of like, you know, we used to say when I was getting a an advanced degree in urban planning, when we talked about having public meetings, we used to talk about breaking out the puppets. So I want to break the puppets out in some local forums and uh, read that book or put somebody out in that activist role. But uh, I think that would be the perfect thing. Well, Megan, that's all the time we have. Thanks for taking the time today, calling it all the way in from Amsterdam. It was great to talk with you, Claudia. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, my guest was just Megan Herbert, illustrator and TV writer, who, in collaboration with Climb Sci Guy Michael Mann, has a new book explaining climate change to young earthlings entitled The Tantrum That Saved the World. The ebook is out now, as we've talked about here, and the books ship next month. We'll be right back after a short break. Get my little Muppet number here. And we'll have Jeffrey Wasserstrom talking about the fourth annual forum for Academy and the Public. We'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. And when they get home, oh brother, there's still lots more work to do. So we always help each other. Yeah, we always help each other. Mom helps dad doing the dishes and the doing of the wash. I help mom do some gluing and the taking out the trash. Thank you for staying tuned, everybody. That was a classic I play when I, it's sort of like a call to action refrain from our Sesame Street friends. Well, welcome back to Ask a Leader. My next guest is UCI history professor, Chinese scholar, and Twitter master, Jeffrey Wasserstrom. He's here to talk about what we'll be enthralled with at the fourth annual forum for the Academy and the Public presented by Humanities and the Law Schools, the Literary Journalism Program, the University of California Humanities Research Institute, Illuminations, and the Los Angeles Review of Books. This year's theme is, Who Do We Think We Are? American Identity and the Ideal of Democracy in the 21st Century. It will convene at UCI's Crystal Cove Auditorium, February 9th through the 10th. That's if you're listening live. This. Friday afternoon and Saturday. It's free and open to the public. More details about how to get your reservations that are highly recommended 
later in the show. Jeff is Chancellor's Professor of History at UC Irvine, where he's also Professor of Law by courtesy and Historical Writing Mentor for the Literary Journalism Program. His most recent books are, as author, China in the 21st Century, What Everyone Needs to Know, it's quite a read, and as editor, The Oxford Illustrated History of Modern China. His articles have appeared in Index on Censorship, Slate and New Left Review, and a wide variety of newspapers, blogs, and journals of opinion. He regularly travels to Asia, is on the editorial board of Descent Magazine, and is the advising editor for China for the Los Angeles Review of Books. To follow him on Twitter is to essentially take the in-case-you-missed-it moments as he's watching some very autocratic regimes take strong, uh, tighten the noose around some what some of the most consequential societies around the world. So I, I strongly recommend following. He joins me in studio. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Jeff Wasserstrom. Oh, it's always good to be on here. Oh, thank Thanks. you. Thank you. Well, let's start with the theme, who do we think we are, American identity and the ideal democracy in the 21st century. It's up. I know it's like a year ago you guys had to f settle on a theme and that is such a that's such a crapshoot. You don't know what's going to happen. You 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 we didn't you wouldn't have known what we were in for 12 months ago. So how did how did that work sort of riding that wild horse all the way till it's time to convene it this weekend? So Amy Willance, who um, is the director of the Forum for the Academy of the Public, which and we do some events throughout the year as well as one big event in January or February. Um, Amy, uh, the who's in the literary journalism uh, program and writes on Haiti and has written on the Middle East and other things. It's it's almost and, and she's also with with John Weiner with the uh, the Trump Watch on KPFK. So and they're they're she's weekly. on the radio a yep. lot, and yeah. she's um she, she's almost scarily prescient with the theme she's come up with. It's really her her um, brainchild. So the scariest one was that last year, <sighs> and we had to pick the theme a year before. Last year, the theme she picked ahead of the election cycle was uh, the future of the truth. And then by the time in early uh, 2017, we were convening to talk about the future of the truth, it seemed so topical. It seemed like it had been chosen that week, but it in fact had been chosen a year ahead of time to try to line up uh, the speakers. The year before that, the theme was what cannot be said, and it was on freedom of speech. And that was picked because the, the theme was chosen right when the Charlie Hebdo uh, killings took place in Paris. And the idea was there were new threats to speaking out. And so we thought a year later, this would be a good thing to revisit. And uh, I, I really remember that um, event fondly because it began oh, uh, yes. with a series of political cartoonists who were talking about how they had adjusted to this or not adjusted including to this. Including the one who had to go back to Malaysia where there was a sentence awaiting him, yeah, a Zunar, lengthy one. It what was, happened to him? It was pretty amazing that we've got it. Well, he's been he's he's continued to Is he a free uh, man? he's continues to write. He's he's not free to do some things like travel, and he's in a continual uh, like a lot of the figures deal is he's in a continual kind of cat and mouse game with with the authorities. And we did speaking of cat and mouse games, we also in one of our forums had Edward Snowden present via Skype, obviously. That he was had so certain amazing. trouble coming. Right. It was it was amazing. And I think it got the biggest turnout for any event we've had so far to have him in dialogue. One of the things is 
we don't just have people give canned talks that they might be giving other places. We no. give them almost always put them in dialogue with other people to get them to say things that they maybe haven't said anyplace else. So I want to, there's a couple things I want, when, when you're talking about the future truth, you know, Jeff, the way I remember that theme was the end of truth. So it's sort of like Amy covers the bases. The future of truth, well, some of these actually, either they need to have question marks at the end of them. Is there a future to the truth? Yes. Yeah, and the Edward Snowden, I mean, I, I pinched myself when we had him pipe through there. And as we were all leaving the, the student union facility, and I was sort of like, everybody's walking around so casually that we're oblivious to what sort of major forum was. I mean, it was just di direct to UCI's audience that Edward Snowden was talking. Yeah, it was yeah, really, yeah. it was not just a technological thing, but it was like, a, a journalistic kind of a, a oh, coup. It was and a I guess coup. it took a yeah. lot of negotiation too, right? It wasn't just him getting booked. It was a legal deal. Well, there, this we, we do have um, the advantage of, of a set of people involved in this who have a very unusual uh, set of relationships and connections so to speak. with people around. Uh, so, you know, John Wiener, who <laughs> has retired from UCI, he's, he was in the history department with me, and I right. felt very privileged to be able to join a department that had somebody I was reading regularly and listening to in the department. But he, he has been involved in the forum, and he's coming back to moderate a session. He's coming down um, from L.A. We don't see him enough at UCI, but he'll be back here to moderate the first full panel after the keynote on, on Friday afternoon, evening. And we'll get that. We're going to go a few sort of lightning around with some of the, the panels. Well, now, I wanted to bring up that this setting... It has a little feel of an echo chamber. I know there's a great deal of effort that you've had political agents from you know different all along the spectrum, but the audience I feel like is kind of of the same mindset, and it came into sharper relief when I I went to it. It's not about me, but it's just to, to illustrate a point about how this forum works and feels is going to the Republican statewide convention in Anaheim last October and to hear Grover Norquist deride the earnest kind of discussion and probing that takes place in a, something like the forum on the academy and the public. You know, it, it really, it's excruciating to see that split screen of who's doing the work and who's making facile sort of criticisms about that work being done. So I, I'd like to know how you exert your outreach to bring as many other people in there so there isn't as much of an echo chamber feel to this forum. So what we, what we can do is we can make sure that there isn't a kind of consensus and agreement among the people who we have speaking. Correct. So even if we do get people of a certain mindset um, on the whole coming to, to see the talk, which to see the events, which isn't... Um, necessarily going to be the case, but there may be at skew in one direction, they're going to be exposed to things that they're not used to hearing. Uh, That's we, right. The last, last year, the lunchtime talk was with a de uh, advisor to, the Democrat, uh, to Democratic candidates and advisor to Republican candidates. And admittedly, they, they, the Republican advisor was not somebody who had advised the Trump campaign. He had advised other Republicans, but still, there no, was he, had, there he was, was carrying the party line. There was difference of opinion, and when we had the um, session, um, what cannot be said, the free speech session, there were some very strong disagreements among people on the panels over specific issues, How, like for self. 
self-censorship and that kind of thing. And whether uh, how things like safe spaces, whether this had gone too far, not far enough, right. whether um, we had a, a college president who had uh, from um, Lewis and Clark College came oh, down yeah. to talk about how um, he had dealt with, with students on, on his campus. Um, we had we had a wide variety. We can get people from um, different wings of the university and from completely outside of the university, including the realm of the arts. We always have people who are novelists or this year a poet, um, a and that poet, shakes satirist. things up. A couple of different poets, actually. We yeah. usually have people who, who are in the expressive arts, and that's one of the exciting things for me as a historian to be dealing with something where um, literary journalism is part of it. Barry Siegel always taps into his set of connections within that world and to have people from the law school. So the, these are within a university, you have to realize that, that you can go your whole career in a history department in um, some universities and never really rub shoulders with novelists or with people who've been Supreme Court judge clerks and things like that. And this is one thing that shakes those things up here. Oh, yeah, that's right. You had uh, some... You had a couple of different district attorneys, and was well, it last year? The very first that was amazing. The very first uh, of these annual events was about courtroom narratives, and so it was both about people who had written about trials from journalistic or uh, literary points of view, and people who'd been in the trenches as prosecutors or, or defense attorneys. And so that's the kind of thing that I think does really shake it up. And and all these events are free, which I think is also exciting in, in terms of. The number of people who can come, it's its a still another question who chooses to. But there's no skewing of it toward people either based on, on money they have or um, connections. It's, it's open for the community. Well, there's a kind of a recurrent turnout for people that are always drawn to this so that they're going to keep in the more following you have the more appreciation there's going to be those usual suspects that are rounded up and so hopefully though that there's more and more others and i don't know i, I can't think of her name the college republican she's now she's a statewide president for that association and I, I i can't think of her name right now that she's a senior at uci and so i mean she needs to be I mean, she'll be a provocateur no matter where she goes. I don't know that she gets intellectually honest in her sessions, politic or her public sessions, but sort of drag those people in there to sort of hold everybody accountable and get, mix mix it up, but not not for the sake of provocation, but so we can sort of let's face it, sort of introduce a deeper critical thinking into her own repertoire. Well, I hope she's listening yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> to your I'll, program. I'll, I'll give that a try. Well, for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is UCI history professor Jeffrey Wasserstrom. He's returning to the show to post what we can look forward to at the fourth annual Forum for the Academy and the Public presented by UCI Humanities and Law Schools and the Los Angeles Review of Books. The theme is Who Do We Think We Are? American Identity and the Ideal of Democracy in the 21st Century. It's really held this Friday, if you're listening live, at UCI's Crystal Cove Auditorium, Friday and then Saturday. Well, let's talk about this amazing lineup of nationally arranged with international backgrounds, including there's the provocations that at least three or four of the panelists have put in the Los Angeles Review of Books. That's a, it's an amazing setup, but I'm not sure if everybody who got their reservations to go to this, if they're going to open up that tab and sort of 
get started. It's kind of like a, it's your assignment for the seminar, isn't it? Yeah, it's 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 uh, optional homework before you come. Oh, I say oh, it's necessary. Yeah. Well, one one thing is on Saturday the events will be at the law school at uh, in the education room one 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 one. I hope um, there's enough room in that room. That's I think letting out the seams. I doubt there's enough room. Well, we we went for a bigger room for Jillipore's keynote and the first panel, which is a star-studded one even by um, the traditions of these events. But the Saturday one will be at the law school and there will be a free lunch for people who pre-register. There just is so such a know thing. That. And there is such a thing as a free lunch. Uh, the provocations, I'm glad you asked about that. So in the partnership with the Los Angeles Review of Books, one of the things we've been doing throughout is running some pieces in advance, which kind of set the stage for some of the conversations that go on or are ways in which participants can try out ideas that they've been thinking about that may not come up uh, specifically in, in the event. And in fact, I now think there are now six or eight of them up. At least one just went up this morning and a couple went over up over the weekend. And it's extraordinary because it's also people like uh, Hua Xu and um, Jill Lepore who ordinarily publish in The New Yorker now publishing in, in a publication that begins with Los Angeles rather than New York. Uh, so it's nice to have them connected to the, the West here. Coast before that yeah. and then coming out to be live. And so we have a variety of people who've um, published there already. And you can get a, a teaser. Another way is to say, if you can't make all of the events, this can help figure help you prioritize and figure out who you really you really want to hear. And so there is, there's one up by um, Annette Gordon-Reed, who, again, usually publishes in things that start with New York, the most prestigious publications in the country, in the New York Times, in the New York Review of Books. And here she is with um, a contribution, a blog post for the Los Angeles Review of Books. Okay. So now that was the first section, the first panel, but you're, you're picking up people all over the world. And uh, so uh, what are the kind of marching orders or do you, that you give them? I mean, as you said, there's, they're well-established journalists, thinkers, commentators, and that kind of a thing. But what do you, what do you tell them they have to do? <laughs> so for the Lost provocations, for the writing, we give them uh, an enormous amount of, of freedom. And then um, Amy Wilentz, um edits the, the pieces usually quite lightly because these are um, seasoned, seasoned writers for the most part. But we just want them to take some kind of idea and, and, and play with it. Sometimes it's fairly obvious what a possible angle is, at least. Uh, I think the latest one to go up is by Junko Turao, who's the Asia editor at Internazionale magazine, a wonderful one in Italy. And um, she focuses on Asia in a lot of her writings, but she also, and the editing she does, but um, she's also living in Italy right now, which has, um, which has experienced Berlusconi a figure who has periodically been compared to Trump, um, coming as a kind of celebrity figure, a polarizing figure, an up-and-down figure. And so it seemed kind of obvious to nudge her to write about from somebody who's been inside of it, watching this happen in Italy, what is, it seemed like with Trump. With others, it was, say, here's what you're going to be talking about, what your panel's theme is, what is something that you want to throw out there. And again, we have we have ranges all over the place. Douglas Kearney, um, who's a poet, wrote a poem dealing with race in America. It's it's a powerful piece on the in the provocations. So it's anything from a commentary with a short argument to um, a poem to a piece of satire we've had in the past to we've had political cartoons by the cartoonists. 
So it's a teaser. It's getting you primed. It might lead you, if you've read some of those, to have a question to ask during the Q&A session of, of an author where you want, to, you want to press them on something they said there. I hope people are steering to that. It's not an overwhelming website to go through. So, um, But, I mean, we're all overwhelmed with how much we have to pick up on the web. So it, I'm not sure everybody's going to be sufficiently uh, prepared for that seminar. But And so let's talk then about... You mentioned some of these sections, the keynote and these truths, identity, and the founding documents. And you, you mentioned most of those that are, will be speaking that John Wiener is going to be moderating. And he's just equipped with like, a, I don't know how many weeks of Trump watch over this. So, oh, let me go back. So what is going to be the kind of the meaning of convening this, that the forum we're all feeling like we've been listening to four alarm fires for a, a year. Will the forum be a manual, a lifeboat, a validation session, or something else? Well, I think part of it is um, we begin with a historian, one of the most talented historians in the country writing right now, Jill Lepore, a rare historian who is taken seriously by people within the guild, um, professional historians, and widely read by people um, in the New Yorker and um, and her books that are aimed at the broad reading public, but I think starting with a historian is part of the point. Um, she's going to go, and the first session will go back to the founding documents of the country, and say as a step back way, rather than getting into a uh, what did Obama do, what did Trump do now, but let's say where are we as a country at this particular point in time, and so. Beginning with her is an idea of you know, a step back in history, and then having um, a panel that follows up on that, specifically about identity and the founding documents. But then we want to spin on Saturday in a variety of, uh, of different directions. And I think um, the first panel on Saturday morning, Imagining Another America, which has two people, I, I, it's, uh, four people who are, who are going to be fascinating, but two who I read continually and always um, find refreshing. Hua Xu, um, he writes for The New Yorker about issues of Asian American identity and, and about things that have totally nothing to do with that. His own uh, generational identity, for example, defined largely through music. And Leila Lalami, who is a prize-winning novelist and also writes regularly for The Nation as well as other publications about what it's like to be living in America today as a Muslim. And how does she deal with this? How does she deal with, what does she tell her daughter about this? So how does she navigate her own position within various identities as what she sometimes says, a Muslim, but not a very good one, because she does a variety of things that, that break from what people at least imagine uh, Muslims will do. And the varieties of um, Muslims within America is the kind of theme that she addresses. Um, and Christina Garcia with sort of ambivalence about what the autocracy in Cuba, the legacy of that versus her, her life she's living here now. Yeah, there's, there, she's on it, and Douglas Kearney, the poet who I've already mentioned, right. and it's being moderated by Hector Tobar, who <laughs> I first came across the writing of when he was writing for the LA Times, and now he's writing for the New York Times. Now he's ours. And now he's at UCI. So um, if he hasn't been on your show, clearly he should be. Well, I've, I've asked his spouse, who does good work too, and I've, I, uh, and he's usually got like about a a ring of people around him for me to like shove my little radio card at him, but I'll 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 tell him you you mentioned it. I, yeah. I'll, I'll hyphenate my you do that my request with many associations. So, 
Well, we can't. We cannot be remiss in uh, depriving you of opening up an opportunity to talk about what you want to do on your panel. It's called Imagine. Wait, not Imagine Another America. I'm looking for the title, Jeff. They're looking at us. Like, uh, they're looking at us. They're looking at us. And so, you've got all kinds of continents you're covering in perspectives. Yeah, so this is, I think, um, it's important to realize that given the influence that the United States has had in the world, in the world of popular culture as a way of being a political symbol or a political model at some point, it's crucial to see that the last, uh, the recent past has altered America, it's altered the world, and also there are similar phenomena happening in other parts of the world, in some case trailing and in some case ahead of what was happening here. I mean, I gave the example of um, Junko Turao, who's on the panel reminding us that before there was Trump, there was Berlusconi. I'm very cognizant of the fact that a lot of the things that have been recently said about Trump as a strongman leader who appeals to my country first kind of nationalism are things that um, have been apparent in Asia. Uh, populist leaders, whether elected or um, appointed, these things have been going on for um, several years before they happened to the United States. So I think it's important for I'm, my goal in whatever panel I uh, moderate in this is to break through any vestige of kind of parochialism or over uh, of thinking that the United States is more separate from the world than it really is. So getting people, and I've moderated sessions similar to this in, in past ones, linking, taking whatever theme it is and saying, what if we place this in the most global perspective that we can? So trailing and leading so that it, it'll be very clear in that panel. You'll be, you're steering it. So we'll, we'll see where there is a, a kind of a, a contagion that uh, coming from uh, or legacies from other muscle men they're men there's a I don't know how many muscle women autocracies in the world that are affecting or giving more latitude to our current administration as well as our current administration validating some of those strong yeah and I I mean I want to begin by drawing them out on just you know what's changed about the way America is seen in the places they know best and they spend the most time in uh, Xiao Qiang who's originally um, from from China has been living in the United States since about 1989, you ah, know, not accidentally because right. not being able to go back After because Tiananmen. of the political views he has. Okay, and but in 1989 with with Tiananmen, um, the United States was a place that at least some of the participants in that held up as a model of a freer society, the society that they wanted. Um, their country to at least have some elements more like and and some of the things that were admired about America then are no longer being admired in other parts of the world for various reasons both in terms of the authoritarian uh, turn here recently but even before that there was um, concern about just the lack of efficiency and things like that uh, we have a speaker Dmitry Baikov yes. um, who's deeply enmeshed in in issues of Russia we have Carlos Rajo who's dealing with Mexico a country nearby um, that we often don't think enough about, but it's it, one of the things that, that and, and he can talk about other parts of Latin America, but it's there are many different issues that we need to um, think about. This won't be about freedom of speech the way some earlier ones, but that's part of the backdrop for what's, um, what's at stake here. It used to be you could say journalists might face certain kinds of pressures within the United States, but they didn't have, they didn't have the White House disputing their right 
to investigate the right to ask questions. And balance. now that's that's not happening. And then you look at a place like Mexico, where to be a journalist it's a very dangerous occupation. You think about how the United States threats to the First Amendment in the United States uh, have ripple effects to other there. places. Right. Yeah. Well, we have not very much time, so I'm putting too much pressure on you to talk a, a little bit, or we could go back and forth a bit about what's going to be accomplished in the final panel, democracy and technology, and that will be uh, um, our own Funmi Arewa from the law school is going to be the moderator. And when I took a look at Jonathan Taplin's provocation, I think a lot of it came from his his book, Move Fast and Break Things. It's It read to me as a very quaint analysis now, given the kind of acceleration of the effect of the intrusion of artificial intelligence in how we do anything anymore. Yeah, and I think it's I think it's nice to have those two sessions back to back because I yeah. think a lot of the, um, you know, in some cases the United States is at the kind of technological edge. It's it, we're used to think of ourselves as the technological edge, and what's happening here is being watched and will happen in other places later. But in realms of technology and some of the electronic surveillance and things like that, there are other countries, including China, where it's more advanced. And in fact, we need to be looking and worrying about what's going on there. So I like the fact that even though this one is about democracy and technology, not about uh, global issues, Fumi uh, Arewa, who has she participated wonderfully in these sessions before as a panelist and is now uh, moderating, she spends a lot of time in and thinking about um, Nigeria and other parts of Africa. Craig Calhoun, who's coming down from the Bergruen Foundation, which he's now high up in. It's a new uh, foundation started in... Um, Berggruen Institute in, in LA. Before that, he was the director of the London School of Economics. Before that, he was head of the Social Science Research Council in the United States. So this is a world-class figure and somebody who's, who's spent time in China, spent time in Africa, spent time in Europe, can draw on those kinds of places. And Paul Dorish, one of the leaders, uh, leading figures in our own School of Informatics. And again, this is breaking down silos both between professions in different parts of the world, but also within the university itself. Well, that leaves me breathless to wrap up what I know everybody gathers is going to be the. It's a. It's always sort of a life resetting, mind candy mining, a, a full package. I, I really appreciate your giving us this privileged look at how you're putting it together. So within a couple of weeks, you'll have to come up with next year's theme for the fifth annual. So yeah, yeah, yeah. A, stay tuned. A, a, yeah, we'll, we will. Stay, we'll do this one uh, all over again next year. Well, that's all the time we have. Thank you, Jeff Wasserstrom, for coming to the show today. It's my pleasure. My guest was Jeff Wasserstrom, UC history professor. He's returned to the show to post us on what we can look forward to at the fourth annual Forum for the Academy and the Public, presented by UCI Humanities and the Law Schools and the Los Angeles Review Books. The forum-themed, Who Do We Think We Are? American Identity and the Ideal of Democracy in the 21st Century. It's at UCI's Crystal Cove Auditorium on Friday afternoon, if you're listening live, on February 9th. And on the 10th Saturday, it'll be over at the Education Building 1111. That's part of the law school structure. It's free and open to the public. And everybody is advised to get reservations so they can sort of keep track and get you a lunch for the Saturday presentation. So pre-registration, you can find at sites.uci.edu forward slash American Identity. 
So, I just want to give you all one announcement. Science Policy Group's general meeting is tomorrow. That's February 7th at the Natural Sciences 2 Room, 3201. It's 5 p.m. Congressional candidate and volcanologist Jessie Phoenix will speak to the Science Policy Group about her race for Congress up in, I think it's the Santa Barbara area. Let me double check that. And uh, she's a, worked as a founder nonprofit. The pub night, as usual with the Science Policy Group, will follow. One little advisory circling back to my concern about distractions. Beware of the shiny objects. This morning on National Public Radio, they're camping out and watching the New York Stock Exchange like Southern Californians watch wildfires burn down houses hour after hour. Distractions are the junk food of the mind. Put some dark leafy greens in your attention diet through being mindful of policy, of decisive moves that affect democratic values and processes. Be very mindful. Well, that's my wrap. Next week, I'll have on playwright Amy Tweed about her world premiere, Shrew, that will be performed this spring at the South Coast Repertory Theater. I've got some other stuff to talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening.